Now, I wonder how you would define sin. Nightclubs, uh, TV programs, exhibitions at the National Gallery, they have all been named in honor of sin. But how would you define sin? I would say that the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. Us substituting ourselves for God, us taking God's place. And I say that really because of a verse that we looked at last week, if you were here last week earlier, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5. If you look at verse 5, going to come up on the screen, the snake is speaking to Eve, the woman, and the snake says this, for God knows that when you eat from it, that's the, the one forbidden tree, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You'll be like God. The essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. Us trying to be like God, trying to take God's place, us thinking that we can decide what is right, what is wrong, thinking that the world revolves around us, not God. That is the essence of sin. And then the consequences of sin, they are what we see all around us. So think of COVID, you know, the essence of COVID is this, uh, you know, funny shaped, uh, you know, crown shaped little virus thing. That is the essence of COVID. It whooshes around people's body. Now, we haven't actually seen it with our own eyes unless we're some sort of research scientist, but it's there, but hidden in our bodies. What we've seen is not the essence of COVID, is it? What we've seen is the consequences of COVID. The coughing, the inability to breathe, the ventilators, the dying. Around 15%, I think it is, of our population in the UK have caught the COVID virus rather than being vaccinated against it, but it is 100% of the population that have the sin virus. All of us, all of us, we have in us, going on in us, this desire to be like God, to substitute ourselves with him. That virus, it is sort of whooshing around inside all of us that's the essence of sin. And then it's the consequences of sin that are visible for us all to see, whether it's the small thing like children squabbling over a, a toy, or whether it's the, the big thing like the sickening murder of Sarah Everard. Now, a few times in this sermon series, going through Genesis 1 to 3, we've seen um, that the key thing is God is a relational God. He is a relational God, and he, so he set this world up to be all about relationships. And what we've seen particularly is that God has set this world up particularly in terms of four types of relationship. We've seen it again and again in the first three chapters. So he set it up in terms of our relationship out to other people, our relationship in with ourselves, our relationship down to this world, and our relationship up to God. And what we've seen in Genesis 3 and what we will see now is how the, the, the consequences, the outworkings of sin affect all of those four relationships. Now, let me show you this from our passage. So, you know, you've got Adam and Eve. At the start of our passage, they've just eaten the forbidden fruit. And God comes up to Adam, verse 11, and he says, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? He says, have you done what I told you not to do? And what does this big, brave, courageous, macho man do? He blames his missus. That's what he does. He says it was her fault. She did it. Now, Eve's no better. She also tries to pass the buck. She said it was the snake. It was the snake's fault. 
You see, when it comes to our relationship out to other people, what we see is disunity. There's disunity between Adam and Eve. They start arguing with each other, and it has been the same ever since. You know, with my children, our children, anybody's children, fighting over toys to the awful, abhorrent actions of Wayne Cousins. And everything in between those things, that is what we see. We see disunity between humans. It's all around us, isn't it? In work, in marriages, in the church, at the petrol pumps, there is disunity out to other people. And it all starts here in Genesis 3. Second, what about the consequences in terms of our relationship in with ourselves? Well, it's marked by distress. Now, we saw this last week, if you were here, this, this desire in Adam and Eve to hide, to, to cover up with fig leaves, or uh, I talked about my children hiding under the duvet when they do things wrong. Uh, we hide any way we can in the face of our sin. So verse 10, Adam says to God, he says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. We all try and hide this internal distress that is going on in all of us as a result of our sin. That's why this last week there was such a big thing about Sarah Everard's family asking Wayne Cousins to look up at them as they spoke to him in court. Because he was trying to hide, wasn't he? He had his head down. He wasn't looking up. He was trying to hide because of the distress and the shame at what he had done. Third, our relationship down to this world. Because of sin, it is now characterized by difficulty. So work, which in the Garden of Eden, work has been totally fulfilling in the Garden of Eden, suddenly work becomes frustrating as well. So look at verse 17 coming up on the screen. It says, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. God's saying, work is now tough. It is difficult, and it's not just work. The whole world becomes out of kilter and full of difficulty. You know, think of clay on a, on a potter's wheel. Clay on a potter's wheel. If everything is properly centered, then the pot is totally smooth, isn't it? That's how it's supposed to be. This world was created to be like that, to be centered on just one point, to be centered on our good God. But when that went wrong, when things went off center, when we try to take the place of God, well, what happens? The pot on the potter's wheel goes all wonky and everyone around gets splattered. That is why the world that we live in is as it is, full of inexplicable tragedy and pain and suffering and sorrow. We don't know where the splats are going to happen, but so often we can't answer the question of why something has happened. But since Adam and Eve, the difficulties in our world, they are pointing us back to our out-of-kilter relationship with God, and they are pleading with us to mend it. This world that you and I live in, it is screaming that to us every day. This world, it is like a clay pot on the potter's wheel that has gone wonky and all sorts of people are getting splattered. And then finally, the consequence of sin is in terms of our relationship up to God. And our relationship up to God, it is spoilt and supremely the consequence is death. So look at verse 19. God says, by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. 
For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Just on Thursday, I was doing the, um, a service of the burial of ashes for a wonderful person in our church family uh, who died. He died about a, a year and a bit ago in the middle of COVID when all the restrictions were. When he died, uh, we had a cremation for him, but only a very few people could be there. So just last Thursday, finally, we had this service of burial of this man's ashes in our church family. Now, he was a tall man. He was well over six foot. But as we buried his ashes on Thursday, we were burying a box, a box of dust, a box of dust not much bigger than an ice cream tub. And what does God say? He says, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. We all have this sin virus, and so we all die. In fact, death isn't just about physical death. Adam and Eve, they spiritually died when God banished them from the Garden of Eden. They they spiritually died as they were banished from God's presence. And then their physical death, it was an inevitable consequence of their spiritual death. You see, James Bond may declare that he has no time to die. You know, all the glitz and the glamour on the red carpet of the Duchess of Cambridge and Emma Raducanu and, and Daniel Craig in his rather natty pink smoking jacket, it may look like there's not a care in the world. But it's not true. We know the reality. This world we live in is marked by disunity, distress, difficulty, and death. That's the reality, and it is a grim reality. Now, as you take that in, as you, as you look at that slide there, those, those words, whilst you might be a, you know, impressed by my alliteration, you're probably sitting there thinking, Jago, give me a break. Jago, I came to church this morning to be encouraged, and all you've said, it may be true, but it is thoroughly depressing. That may well be what you're thinking, and I don't blame you. But I want you to keep listening, because whilst that is the reality, and it is a big, big challenge, there is staggeringly good news too. There is staggeringly good news because even in this very chapter of the Bible, even in this chapter that speaks about the origin of all the pain and disorder in this world, even in this very chapter there is incredibly good news because we see the amazing love and grace of God. Let's look at it in terms of those four relationships again. First, in terms of our relationship out to others, it's it's so full of disunity, isn't it? But just see the love of God here. God's just finished speaking. He's he's been speaking these curses, this this right judgment in response to our sin. And then suddenly, what do we get? It is staggeringly out of place. It's so surprising. What we get is the christening. Now, we've had two of them already this morning. Wonderful, they have been. But here we have the very first christening ever. Verse 20. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. She become the mother of all the living. Adam, having been blaming her, disunity, he suddenly acts in love, naming her rather than blaming her, naming her with a beautiful name. Despite the arrival of death into this world, he declares that Eve is the mother of all the living. Life and unity come into a situation that's been characterized by death and disunity. Second, in terms of our relationship into ourselves, full of distress, we're, we're covering up the, the shame, we're hiding, into that we get the clothes. Have a look at the next verse, verse 21. 
It says, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. It's just a staggering little detail, but it shows God's love and grace for them, giving them what they don't deserve. They're just there with a few rather sort of awkward place fig leaves, and God says, no, 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 let me give you some clothes. He gives them what they don't deserve. And maybe this provision of clothes with animals needing to be sacrificed and killed to make the garments of skin to clothe Adam and Eve, maybe it points us forward to the ultimate need of sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus killed, not animals, but Jesus, so that we might be clothed in righteousness, the grace of us being given what we don't deserve, just as Adam and Eve were given clothes that they didn't deserve. Third, in times of our relationship down to this world, there is difficulty, isn't there, in so many ways. And so in actual fact, it is God's love, God's grace that chucked Adam and Eve out of the garden. The chuck out, that is part of God's love. Just look at the next verse, verse 22. It says, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden. You see, if Adam and Eve, if they had eaten from that tree of life at that very point, they would have been locked into this state of difficulty and rebellion with God for eternity. And there would be nothing worse than that. No salvation possible. No relationship with God possible. No hope forever. And so instead, what happens? They get chucked out. And them and us, we are in this world. We're not in Eden. We're in this world that is characterized by difficulty, but we're in a world that keeps asking and urging us to question what is going on, to question why do you and I, why do we long for paradise, but we're unable to create it? Why do we long for harmony, but we're full of discord and strife? Why do we long for eternity, but we all die? Inbuilt in every single person on this planet, within all of us, there is this this feeling, what is going on as we're in this difficult, wonky potter's wheel kind of world? There's this recognition in all of us that there must be something more. And so you see this chucking out into the Garden of Eden, it was part of God's grace in that it stirs every single one of us to cry out, surely, surely there must be something more than what we experience now. The chuck-out is part of God's grace. And then finally, and most wonderfully, in terms of our relationship up to God, characterized by death, we get the crusher. We get the crusher. Verse 15, God speaking to the snake, to Satan, and he says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. I see the first Adam. The first Adam, as the snake came to tempt Eve to eat the fruit, the first Adam should have stamped on the snake and killed it, but he didn't. And yet here, God promises that there will be someone else, one of Eve's offspring, a second Adam, who will crush Satan. Now what happens? Eve has her first son, Cain. Is he going to be the one to crush Satan? Well, no, he turns out to be a murderer. And all through the Old Testament, there is this search going on, this search for one of Eve's offspring, one who will overcome the devil, who will crush his head, who will conquer over evil. And this search keeps on going on and on and on and on and on, all the way to Jesus. 
Now, of course, it was costly. It was painful. Eve's offspring didn't just crush the head of the snake, but the snake struck his heel. Jesus had to go to his death to conquer over sin and Satan. And I wonder if you could just picture, just for a moment, if you had been in Jerusalem, if you'd been in Jerusalem on the day when Jesus was dying on the cross and you'd been at the temple, I wonder if you can picture what you would have seen if you'd been at the temple that day. Now, many of you probably know you would have seen a giant curtain, a giant curtain thicker than a man's hand. It would have been 10, 20 meters high. It was like a giant no-entry sign declaring that no one can enter into God's presence. No one can enter into the Holy of Holies where God dwells and have eternal life. This giant no-entry sign. But what you may not know is what was embroidered on that giant curtain. What was embroidered on that giant no-entry sign? Because what was embroidered on that giant curtain was cherubim, God's angelic attendants. It tells us that in Exodus 36, verse 35. It says that cherubim were embroidered into the curtain that hung in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies where God dwelt from the rest of the world, saying no one can come in. Now I want you to look at Genesis 3, 24, the last verse of our reading, and what it says there. It says, after God drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, just as God's pre- with God's presence in the temple, so with God's presence in the Garden of Eden. The cherubim, they are there as part of a giant no-entry sign. The cherubim are like sort of God's heavenly bouncers saying there is no way in, no one can come into God's presence. And yet, when Jesus died on the cross, that curtain with its embroidered cherubim, it was torn in two from top to bottom, God himself tearing the way open into his presence, tearing open the way to the tree of life through the cherubim back to Eden. You see, there is no way back to the tree of life without going under that flaming sword of God's right judgment at sin. And that's why Adam and Eve couldn't do that and survive. It's why you and I, we can't do that. We can't get back on our own terms to get back to the tree of life and survive the sword of God's right judgment at sin because we all are sinful. But at the cross... Jesus Christ went under the sword. Jesus Christ, he was substituted for us and the way to the tree of life through the cherubim became open. It is the most staggering news ever. It is at the cross that Satan was crushed. It is at the cross that Jesus opened the way into God's presence And it is at the cross that we can know most clearly how wide and long and high and deep is the love of God for us, this love that substituted himself for us. You know, today I haven't just been speaking about sin. I've also been speaking about salvation. Because if you talk about one, you need to talk about the other as well. Sin is the problem. We've seen the consequences of sin. We know them, disunity, distress, difficulty, death. Sin's the problem. And then salvation is the solution. 
And we've seen the evidences of salvation. Even here in Genesis 3, the christening, the clothes, the chuck out, the crusher. But here's the thing. Remember what I said at the start. If the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God, the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us, taking our place. With sin, we put ourselves where God deserves to be. With salvation, God puts himself where we deserve to be. On the cross, he's in our place, paying the price of your sin and my sin. You see, against this black backdrop of disunity and distress and difficulty and death, the cross of Christ illuminates all the more powerfully the amazing love that God has for you and for me. No one, none of us can make sense of this world. None of us can find our way back to Eden unless we throw ourselves on the one who substituted himself for us and he threw himself on the sword of his own judgment that you and I deserve to face for our sins.